0: Greetings, programs, and welcome to a very special episode of the Awesome Friday pod- Podcast, 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 Podcast. My, We came from Boston. We're up on Sumner Street, but we're doing the podcast. You know. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, my name is Matthew, and with me, as always, is Simon. How are you today, Simon? Hey,
1: how's it going? I'm good. How are you doing? Great to have you with us.
0: <laughs> what accent is that? That. <laughs> That's just great. That's just gravelly. That's, that's just like that's you know, my, a in your
1: throat. That's my George Lucas once, like a bar owner in a Star Wars prequel <laughs> that um is like kind of a gangster badass, but it's good-hearted. And it's probably a giant frog or something. It's kind of Dex Dexter-related. It just sounds um, like you have a sore throat, so. man. It just <laughs> yeah, sounds like yeah, a sore throat. I'm Actually, it's, it's verging it really into the terrible Jewish stereotype guy, uh, Watto. What do you want? Uh, I do yeah, love, from the I can Do a good one. Maybe I can't. I can do I can't. I can I can do I I Professional water impressions. I'm fine. I'm fine. I mean,
0: I don't I don't know, man. Like I feel like maybe doing impressions of the horrible Jewish stereotype <laughs> is not a not a great career path. Come I'm, on, like,
1: it's not as if it's not a Jewish stereotype. It's not as if it was a diminutive of a certain character with certain facial features who was really obsessed with gambling and money. That's not I get, mean, no. that's, not, <laughs> that's not. I'm sure control. and yeah,
0: I'm sure and I'm sure that the Trade Federation also, you know, <laughs> just because they had uh, eyes with slits in the middle and spoke <laughs> in a stilted accent and were obsessed with the flow what? of commerce, I'm sure that wasn't a stereotype of any kind either.
1: Come on. You're reading far too much into this.
0: What I find actually is a fascinating thing about Star Wars is that like, I think we all basically recognized in 1999 that that was terrible, right? Like even in nights, like 24 it, years ago, even we were all the on build. the
1: nose. Yes.
0: Like at that point, I think even the worst of us were like, this is probably bad, right? Like, this is probably, this is probably bad. Like, like 24, 24 years ago, we were not as culturally enlightened as we are today. And I'm, you know, that's why, you know, it's, I think it's fine to engage with problematic material as long as you understand the context and the reasons why it's problematic and you're able to sort of like move past it. Look, dude, are you speaking right. to
1: the person who had to put up with the empire or having clipped British accents? The empire that likes going to go planet to planet and take everything and, and spread the culture aggressively.
0: Yeah, but that's like, just that's uh, just accurate though. So, uh,
1: so uh, dear, I guess what I'm saying is on, that man.
0: like I guess what I'm saying is that like, you know, we're far more culturally enlightened today than we were, but at the same time, like, even in nineteen ninety-nine, I feel like most of us must have been like this is probably bad, right? Like this is probably yeah. so, Ooh. Like, close. is this okay? Is this okay? Like <laughs> you know, my teacher in high school told me I shouldn't I shouldn't do that Asian accent anymore. Is this okay? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, anyway. Um, but yeah, things are things are good. That's we're good. watching stuff. We're and on this note, we're talking about Star Wars today. That's why this is a very special episode of the Awesome Friday podcast. And by very special, I of course do not mean late. Uh, I mean exactly on time.
1: Well, <laughs> I mean that too. But yeah. uh, you're, we're physically publishing this as quickly as we can after the embargo for the thing we're talking about today, which means you're not going to get this on Sunday as usual. You're gonna yeah, you're like, going to get it. T- this is Tuesday or is this Wednesday? What day is this?
0: Uh, so the, so the, the review embargo for the show we're about to talk about, uh, which for the record is Star Wars Ahsoka, uh, the review embargo is 9 a.m. Pacific time on the 22nd, which is Wednesday, which is also the day the show comes out, uh, which is which is usually not a great sign when the embargo is so late. Um, however, in this particular case, I mean Disney does this for everything now. It is what it is. It's fine. I think they understand they don't really need uh, you know critics and buzz building for something like Star Wars, which is fine. Um, But spoiler alert, usually they do that on stuff that's bad, and this is not that, so I'm very excited to talk about it.
1: I also don't understand the split embargo dates where you have a social media reactions date of, like, the 17th and then a review date, review coverage of the 23rd or whatever, and surely a review is a stated opinion about something, and a social media reaction, is it meant to be literally, I have seen Ahsoka, like, without any opinion, because if you give an opinion in your social media then that's a review. No. So
0: I mean, this—I don't know if our listeners are interested in this, but the, I, for me, the difference is that the social media reaction is everything you can fit into a tweet, right? So, or maybe review. maybe a couple of tweets. So our social media reaction is like, so I had the chance to see Ahsoka and I liked it, and I think it's neat, and I can't wait to see what comes next. And a review, the review embargo is like. I've seen Ahsoka. Here, here is why I liked it. Here are some more specific notes on these characters or these performances or the overreaching plots, that kind of thing. So, like uh-huh. the difference, the difference is in detail, effectively. Right. But yeah. So there, I think, I think that like from a business perspective, uh, the mm-hmm. the split embargoes make sense because it's much easier to build buzz off a thousand people saying I've seen it and I liked it than it is off. You know, maybe people being like, here's my nuanced take on the representation of the Grey Jedi in this upcoming Star Wars project that is set between, you know, like, Mm -hmm. one of those things is easier to market than the other, is all I'm trying to say.
1: Yes. Interesting. Well, today is nuance. then, is it? Is that what we're going to bring to the table?
0: uh, I mean, as much as is possible on the internet. Uh, Mm -hmm. And before we get started... um, because it is a good show, and I, but before we get started, I just like to point out that so we're talking today. <clears throat> this show is going to be out on the twenty second, and as of the time we're recording this, the ongoing WGA and SAG after strikes are still happening. Um, <clears throat> the AMPTP has not come back to the table uh, for a SAG after, although there is apparently an inter a proposal for WGA at this point, I believe, to end their strikes, and I we would like to point out that none of this is possible without the writers, without the performers, without everyone who makes these shows who clearly loves these shows, these universes, these characters, and it is not possible to do these with AI. And um, it is not, it's, it's not possible to do these without, without the, the love that these people bring to the material. And uh, we stand in solidarity with the WGA and the, and the uh, SAG-AFTRA, and we hope they get a fair deal soon. But if they don't, I hope they stay on strike as long as they need to to get that fair deal. Because none of the stuff that you watch would be possible without the people who make it. No matter what Disney tells you. No matter what any studio tells you.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: um, yeah, that's pretty much that. Anything you want to add to that,
1: Simon? Uh, we talk about this a lot. And I think we should talk about this a lot we've we've mentioned this at every podcast and we we've talked a lot in the past about uh the wider societal take on artistic creation these days and I think there are multiple things coming to a head here so, but I think that the uh, advancement of AI in the creation of data that can be interpreted as a script um is has really exacerbated all these things that have been happening for years and years even when I was in the industry like 12 14 years ago when I was doing it professionally this was coming to a head and I think they the line has been drawn now and the most upsetting thing to me is that they just don't they don't seem to want to try and find a solution they just want to sit it out and let people lose their houses let people go hungry I've got two very close friends in in <coughs> Vancouver or the area, great Vancouver, who are currently on major damage control because their spouses work in the Canadian industry. Now one's an actor, one's a set designer and the Canadian unions are not allowed to go on strike in support of Sagafra. So they're not on strike, but because Vancouver is such a huge filming industry, for American film productions. Nothing's coming up here. And so they're both on like absolute money lockdown until they try and sit this out. So it's affecting so many people and it's so cynical. And it's such a horrible confirmation of what I've been feeling for a long, long time is that these big, these huge, huge companies that used to be fine with paying residuals and used to understand that you pay for good writing and you pay for good acting, and then you keep paying when you show something and make money from it. The creators get a slice of that. They used to just be fine, until the streaming industries, industries decided that they wanted to make more money, so to pay uh, pay fewer or zero residuals. And now they've they're all openly hiring AI engineers, and they I. As business people, if they can remove the human element from content, capital C, content creation, then that's the perfect scenario for them because they never have to pay another human again. And it's just a horrible confirmation of what I've been feeling for a while and that art is dead. The society we live in does not value art as any kind of thing because it's not directly uh, uh, profitable. You have to... You, it's a business that happens to use create other people's creative output. And if they can reduce the money they pay for that, then they're clearly all going. And they're not even... The the latest uh, um, proposed contract from Segafra, which was rejected outright, was just basic things like pay background better. I don't even want to get into the way background are treated on set if there's a reason background don't have their own like sub union, because they would never work. They would be on strike constantly because they're treated so badly and paid so badly. Um, So Sagafra tried to put in something about background, tried to put in something about being paid for extra overtime or this, that and the other. It's all just just being rejected. Just being rejected. One of the, one of
0: the the proposals was to, uh, to better monitor and penalize the studios when the performers aren't given sufficient meal breaks and it was flatly rejected. Which yeah. is just like, why? Like it's just...
1: Because all, because all <clears throat> of this is... I think they think that they can just ride this wave. These big, big companies are just going to dip into their resort, r- reserves and just ride the wave and wait for them. To, wait for the creators to break because they don't value creativity because it is not money. It's not an Excel spreadsheet. And well, I think the you other thing this, is... Uh, for me,
0: I think the other thing is that the one thing that's majorly different today in 2023 than it was... And I'm just going to stick to the Writers Guild strikes. So the last one was 2007, 2008. Um, and there was one in the 80s. And there was... Uh, the last one before that, I think, was in the 60s. Like, 1960? And each time... Uh, before now, they didn't. What they didn't have, what the world didn't have, was social media. So the narrative around the strikes was whatever the studios wanted it to be, because the big media companies own the big media traits, and they're able to like basically skew every story to be like, "Oh yeah, your show is canceled because the actors are on, the writers or actors are on strike," mm. which is when the actual story is the actors are on strike because they're not getting paid. You know, like mm. they're being abused in their workplace effectively um, but now we have social media so every time that the that the studios try something like these strong arm tactics that they've tried in the past uh it just comes out on social media and it turns the narrative against them a little bit and i think that oh. is maybe why this strike will go for longer because not only the other dumb thing is that like uh you know they sort of count on People at different levels not really necessarily communicating about their compensation or about their deals Mm. or about the conditions on their sets. But now they've been on strike together, walking lines together for over a 100 days, sharing Mm. stories. And it's just increasing everything about the climate right now, whether we're just talking about our current stage of capitalism or just the conditions in Hollywood that they've created for themselves Like is just increasing the solidarity of the striking workers, which is, I think, wonderful. And and the other thing is that um, I don't know what the studios are expecting here. Because on the one hand, they're treating it like they hold all the cards, but when the writers went on strike in 1960, the result of that was they got health insurance and they got residuals, which they had not been getting before that point. They were, finally got fed up, and they were like, no, you need to pay us for the ongoing profiteering from our work. And uh, I honestly don't, off the top of my head, remember exactly what they went on strike for in 2008. Um, I'm pretty sure it was residuals to do with home video at that time because DVD was ex- DVDs were exploding. Like VHS was, um, residuals from VHS was part of the cause of the 81 writer strike, and residuals from DVDs and Blu-rays because every time there's a new me- a new format, a new medium, the studios go, "Well, that's not covered by the deal, so we're not going to pay for it. We're not going to pay you for it." And then the writers go on strike and they win. Every time they have won. So I don't exactly know what the studios <laughs> think they're going to get here, you know. They, they they didn't pay residuals on on VHS and then the writers won on strike and then they had to pay. And then they didn't pay residuals on DVDs and Blu-rays, and then the writers went on strike, and then they had to pay. And now they aren't paying residuals on streaming, and the writers are on strike, and they're gonna have to pay. Like they're just not gonna be able to create the content if they don't pay, right? So, mm. it, it, I just it the whole thing is very frustrating. I think I think I said this last week, but the the quote I think it was Matt Matt Zoller's site said on Twitter the other day that the one that really hammers it home for me is that like. You know, in the in the past, every studio head wanted to be Jack Warner, and today, the, every studio head just wants to be a billionaire.
1: Mm. And I think I... The, it it puts into focus all the bullshit that comes out as well about the anything that Disney say or Netflix says about um, art being important to them, or or like preservation of art, or the the quality is important to them. We, this is absolutely crystal clear confirmation that it's complete just marketing they don't believe it at all and it what's really interesting is like a company like a24 who are getting things made because they agree to everything they're like yeah sure we agree to all of your demands so please carry on making a24 stuff that tells you exactly how they treat their stuff as well and makes makes me want to give my money to a24 way more than these other big companies but i can draw the line back like I'm 46 and when I was 16 I uh, in you in England you have to choose your your subjects and uh actually it was at 14 so this is like 32 years ago and arts education has been reduced uh, and diminished for decades and and I can draw the line now as someone who uh, when I made my choices, dr- the only arts education thing was drama and it was at the end and you could either do drama or geography in the spare time when all the other important things are, are going on. And then I went into teaching it and then the, the attitude towards arts education in schools as well as parents, but definitely in schools is it is a spare subject that has no use. And then you see the difference it makes on the students who actually come through your doors. Uh, especially if they're learning the language at the same time night and day difference. Um, and then we get like 30 something years later, I can draw a line straight through the way society and businesses are, uh, l- who look at creatives and look at art as just being this fun thing that isn't really useful or profitable. And, uh, it just drives me crazy. Always has. So that's you, what, you know, what's
0: you know, what's frustrating too. Um, So, obviously, uh, the WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes are getting lots of attention, and rightly so. Did you know that ACTRA is locked out of making commercials here in Canada? No. So, ACTRA is the the Canadian Union uh, for Actors, uh, the Alliance of Canadian Cinema, Television, and Radio Artists. Um, and on one, one of the big contracts, contracts, but collective bargaining agreements they have is with uh, a group called the, uh, NCA and also the ICA. Those are the national and international commercial, um, agreements. So the ICA represents companies that want to make advertising here in Canada. So if you see an ad that is, uh, for a Canadian product or, or service and it's shot with Canadians, whatever that all comes through a collective bargaining agreement called the ICA uh, the NCA. Um, when that bargaining agreement came up for review, which was over a year ago now, just to put this in perspective, like 12 more than 12 months ago, as I understand it, they proposed something like a 60% cut to pay rates the elimination of retirement contributions and the end of like multi-employer, they have a multi-employer benefit plan because the ICA like represents like 15 advertising agencies here in Canada. And they said, we're going to, we want to stop doing that. And when Actra said, no, we're not going to let you cut all of our pay and benefits. do the ICA locked them out? They have been locked out of making ads Commercial work of commercial work in Canada for over a year. Every commercial that's been filmed in Canada has been non-union, and I only found this out as a Canadian person because an American actor who mostly does non-union work that I follow on TikTok talked about it. She went to mm-hmm. Toronto to film an ad and realized, "Holy shit, I'm being a scab right now!" And she had no idea until mm-hmm. she'd done it. Um, so it's happening all over. You know, it's big, it's big labor summer. It's not like an open strike like they're not on strike they are being locked out of work which is a different different thing um but it's uh it's similarly terrible because like how are you supposed to i mean most actors make their their work in this kind of work right like the vast majority of actors are working class and lots of people make their make their bones like making ads and smaller projects and these are the kinds of things they're just not able to work on right now and it's uh very 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 frustrating uh because basically because the studios and in this case the advertising agencies don't don't want to pay. Yeah. It's uh and they're just actively employing scabs to do it. It's very frustrating.
1: Anyway, so we should we move on? Otherwise, we're just gonna talk about this. Because as you can probably tell, we're both quite upset about this whole thing. <laughs> we know a lot of people in the industry and it's shit.
0: I mean if the last like Several weeks or months worth of podcast episodes where we openly rant about it haven't haven't hammered that home. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, anyway, okay. yeah, we should we should move on. So let's move on to talking about the single thing we're talking about this week, uh, which is the first two episodes of Star Wars: Ahsoka, uh, made by the Evil Empire. I mean Disney. Um, <laughs> uh, and they pick up the story of Ahsoka Tano. So for those of you who don't know, um, I'm sure you are at least aware that there was an animated series called Clone Wars, and then a follow-up series called Rebels. Clone Wars was a very, um, it was an anthology series, so every two, it'd be uh, stories told over two or three episodes um, with multiple sort of groups of characters um, uh, throughout the Clone Wars. Uh, and one of those characters is Ahsoka Tano. And she is, at the beginning of that series, she is a teenager, and she is Anakin Skywalker's Padawan learner, his apprentice. Um, And she grows, and eventually at the end of the Clone Wars show, she eventually leaves the Jedi Order um, in disgust over a controversy that I'm not going to go into, but it's actually a super interesting storyline. And eventually, so Rebels takes place in, in the years leading up to original star wars so not the clone wars but the empire is in full force um and at one point we see in the background we see luke skywalker when he's like 10. so it's like five you know five to ten years pre-star wars and in that series it it basically chronicles the formation of the rebel alliance and it's revealed at at certain points that osipitano is uh, a sort of coordinator she uh she's helping the various cells of resistance communicate and coordinate and um it's also great she's a young woman at this point she's still using her lightsaber she's still with the force but she's not a jedi anymore it's very very interesting um and so ahsoka takes place after the original trilogy and uh probably concurrently with the more recent series like uh i I think it's basically concurrent with uh, the third season of The Mandalorian. Oh. So that's about uh, 10, 9, 10, 11 years after the Battle of Yavin, for those of you who care about that kind of thing. And uh, at the end of Rebels, there was a major character called Ezra, who was like the first new Jedi who disappeared. And this show picks up Ahsoka on the trail of the major antagonist of that show, uh, grand Admiral Thrawn. And, uh, I don't know how much more of the story I want to tell you at this point. Um, cause I think it's really interesting and goes to a lot of interesting places, but I think the key thing to remember here, although I don't think you need to watch rebels, this is very much a sequel to rebels. Mm-hmm. Like it's basically live action rebels season five. And I'm, I'm all in. I thought rebels was among the best star Wars that's been made. Mm-hmm. Um, full stop, like not even like recent, recently made, but just Star Wars that has been made. And uh, this being a live action sequel to that, I think is, is great. Uh, it's, we have at least, uh, so far we have at least two major characters from that show, Kara uh, Syndulla, who is like the, the captain of the team uh, in Rebels and also Sabine Wren, who's a young Mandalorian uh, who's on that team our major characters in Ahsoka and it's just really great to see them in live action. Uh, the show is ridiculously well cast. We already knew that Rosario Dawson was going to be playing Ahsoka, um, but now we have Mary Elizabeth Winstead playing Hera and we have Natasha uh, Liu Bordizo playing Sabine. Um, and it's, they're pretty, I would say universally great. Like as, as someone who is very invested in rebels, I was very worried that these new performers would not be able to like take over the characters in a way that I might find satisfying. But let me just assuage that fear right now. They are both great. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, in particular, um, is is great as Hera. And I don't like. I'm, I'm there's so much I want to say that's but it's all spoilery, and I don't want to say it. So at the moment, I'm just gonna take a beat and reassess my thoughts while Simon mm. tells you what he thinks of the show.
1: So I think everything you say I agree with. It's really interesting to me that um, we've talked a lot about what doesn't work with The Mandalorian, and Filoni's been a major part of The Mandalorian with Jon Favreau and Robert Rodriguez. And it's been so interesting to me because Filoni... Really did such a great job with Rebels, and I was quite surprised that uh, Mandalorian didn't have the same kind of lightness and the same kind of tone. And seeing him back by himself without Filoni and Rodriguez's um, influence kind of makes me think that's the best place for him to be because um, I went into this with very low expectations. Um, it's fair to say that Star Wars has been letting me down more than not. Um, Andor was an outlier, and what's interesting, and I think that Andor's influence and reaction, critical and commercial reaction, has really been a huge influence on, um, on even things like Secret, Secret Invasion, uh, but definitely on this show as well. But what what it really feels like, and you were absolutely right, is that it feels like a Rebels Part Two, and it and it's. I didn't think it would be able to do it to be honest because that jump from animated to live action has so many dangerous elements that you could get wrong not least the casting but just the the tone and try to find that balance of what the the populist Star Wars viewer who wants hints and cameos and answers and links and then you've got a wider audience who just wants a good story and I think sometimes they forget that latter part a bit and even just the first two episodes i'm so impressed with the tone of it and how how good it looks as well and also um that it doesn't feel particularly rushed one of my big criticisms with star wars shows is that the uh, the characters never really given much time for any kind of development because there's always this rush to get them to the next situation the next reveal the next thing And there are loads of moments, particularly in episode one, but in episode two as well, where there are are long held moments of silence while a character kind of thinks about something. And there's one character, uh, Sabine at one point has to try and do a thing. And instead of her just working out how to do it instantly, it, it really takes us time to show us how she kind of works out the kinks in this puzzle. And the... The whole thing kind of feels like that, like it doesn't feel rushed and it actually feels like a a much more uh, mature or or reasoned approach to these characters. So then when there is action, it's a nice contrast. You don't feel like you're always like hurtling forward to the next battle, the next fight or the next reveal. I mean, there's still some really clunky dialogue. I don't think Star Wars... Uh, uh, I think Star Wars suffers from a dialogue delivery issue in everything but and when it comes to the TV shows. In the, there's, everyone has a perfect soundbite. Every conversation goes back and forth uninterrupted. Everyone has the perfect edited moment of comprehension before saying their perfect soundbite. And I think that's still present here as well, particularly in episode one. But what's great about Ahsoka is that that's balanced out by, Absolute phenomenal casting, and uh, the interaction between the cast is great. I I love Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I've been a major uh, cheerleader for her for a long time, but even I am like surprised at how well she's capturing Hera. Hera is one of my probably my favorite character from the Rebel Show, and I just think she's phenomenal. I didn't think it was possible to get that kind of mix of what Hera is, and she's just fantastic. But also uh Rosalia Dawson's fantastic of course and uh Natasha Louis um but I can't say her last name can't remember her last name well Dizo is again Sabine is a tricky thing to get right and I think she's brilliant in this as Sabine and um there's one thing I really like as well and then I'll I'll let you talk again but the (laughs) uh there is a gap between End of Rebels and this. I'm not sure. Te- I, ten years feels too long, but there's definitely a sizable gap because um, Filoni's taken some pretty big swings that I was not expecting in that he's inserted major story elements that we we didn't see between the End of Rebels where they they left together and were buddy-buddy and the beginning of Ahsoka where uh, Sabina and Ahsoka are not talking. Because and there's no, if I remember rightly, and you may want to correct me on this. There's no indication in Rebels that Sabina's force sensitive, at all, and so the idea that um, she uh, that uh, Ahsoka tried to train her and essentially failed, which of course echoes back to Luke, echoes back to, of uh, God, Qui Gon even, uh, and of course. Anakin is is such a... a, The ghost of Anakin is present for Ahsoka at all times as well, which I really like. And uh, I thought that was a really big swing that could have really gone wrong, and I think it's great. It's a really interesting story, beat. There's a, a major lightsaber battle that kind of shows us that Sabine maybe isn't the kind of person to be that Jedi, and when she kind of reclaims her other... Mandalorian identity with the blasters—it feels more fitting. I just think it's—it's it's, it's really successful the first two episodes, and there's a really great um, fight. I did there's a lightsaber scene in the first episode which is not good. I mean, people need to stop spinning 360 degrees. I've unfortunately that um, that <laughs> single sword fighting uh, class that I did at the sword place I used to go to has opened my eyes to people would not spin 360 degrees when sword fighting because the other person would just go, Doink. like, yeah. the, people need the, to stop spinning. The, in the, serious problem,
0: the serious problem with knowing anything about how to fight with a sword is that every sword fight on screen becomes, stab him, stab him now, stab him now. Just do it <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> but,
1: but there is a second lightsaber battle um, in, in, a, in a ship dock with Ahsoka and two other people that is exceptional. And it, it's sort of there's a there's two different things happening at the same time, and it's just shot really really well. Uh, Chopper remains the best droid, but the uh, the other droid is great as well. But um, unf- not unfortunately, but I haven't seen. I know you've talked a lot about um, uh, uh, Ray Stevenson before. I haven't seen him in anything, and he's in this this really interesting like fallen. It's not really a spoiler. He's a a, a was Jedi who is now got hit, almost like a mercenary with his own Padawan, super interesting character who is not s- like being played as evil, but he's definitely not someone you want to mess with. Ray Stevenson is phenomenal in the first two episodes and uh, it's heartbreaking that he died so young, really. So
0: just to illuminate the timeline just a little bit, um, So Star Wars Rebels takes place, uh, so the Battle of Yavin, which is the big battle in Star Wars, uh, which is the first movie. It's just called Star Wars. I will die on this hill. Um, Yes. uh, So it takes place between five, five years before the Battle of Yavin. All the way up to just about the Battle of Yavin. Like one of the last things that happens in Rebels is they are forced to move their base to Yavin Four. Um, and about a it, so I think it ends about a year before the Battle of Yavin. Um, so the end of Return of the Jedi is about four years later. So four years after Battle of Yavin, because this is the timeline that we use the way we describe time in Star Wars. And The Mandalorian starts five years after that. So nine years after Battle of Yavin. And this takes place concurrently with season three of The Mandalorian. So it's fairly safe to say that this is going to be 10 to 11 years after Star Wars. Or about about six years after the end of Return of the Jedi. Or about 10 years since we last... So uh, 10 years since the last major thing that happened in Rebels, but the last shot of Rebels is actually basically recreated in the show. The last shot of Rebels is uh, Ahsoka coming to see Sabine to recruit her to go find Ezra or to go on some quest. We don't actually know what it is at that point. We assume that it's to go find Ezra. And in fact, if you go back and watch that episode, it is beat for beat, like, recreated in this with, uh, in the same place, with the same ships flying overhead, everything. Uh, which is kind of great. Um, so yeah, it is about ten years later. And, you're not wrong, there's a lot of really interesting big swing choices that I really, really worry they're gonna try and make, like, a prequel series to explain, which I really don't think that they need to. It's gonna be far more interesting for us to find out Ahsoka and Sabine's history just mm-hmm. from this show. Definitely. And the show also makes it clear that although Sabine was taken on as an apprentice, she's actually it's not just that she was never indicated to being Force sensitive, she's just not that Force sensitive. Um so I think it's another a really interesting take because everyone you know lots of people talk about you know Jedi knights need to hit the Force. Um and they need to be strong with the lightsaber. But I'm going to make a, a big swing comparison here. But one of the things I've always liked about the Empire Strikes Back and about Yoda in particular. And Yoda as he appears in the Empire Strikes Back. And then again in The Last Jedi. Is that it's really made clear that there are more important things to being a Jedi than just being good with the lightsaber or just being able to push stuff around with the Force. It's about, you know, connection and understanding and the way you interact with the world around you and a strict moral code. And I feel like the prequel series, one of the biggest disservices they did to the originals was having Yoda pick up a lightsaber and fight, (laughs) because it sort of undermines that idea that He's an important Jedi, not because he's good with the lightsaber, but because he has a strict moral code. He's strongly connected to the Force. He understands right from wrong and just how the world around him works and how to interact with that world. And I feel like they chose the show is saying that they chose Sabine not because she's good with the Force, but because of that other thing, because of the things that are more important. She has a strict moral code. She has clearly, clearly defined ideas of what's right and what's wrong and how to achieve those things. And because she's really intuitive when it comes to like puzzles and mysteries and things that need to be worked out and solved. And I find that super interesting and I hope they don't give her some moment of revelation that makes her a strong lightsaber fighter. Because you're not wrong, that first lightsaber fight in the first episode is really weak, but I like that it's weak because it's between a Padawan we've never seen before and another Padawan who hasn't been training for years, who was never that good at it to begin with. And I think Mm -hmm. that that excuses it a little bit. And I think that like in that way, it's thematically very on point, even if it is a bit like telegraphed, I think it's telegraphed on purpose this time, or it feels like it could be at least. Mm. Um, And, uh, so yeah, I think there's a lot of really interesting... What I'm trying to say is there's a lot of really interesting choices going on here. And I think that this show's great strength is that it is inheriting almost everything it is from Rebels and a little bit from Clone Wars. Um, which... Because it's not, it's not concerned with being Star Wars, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. the one of the biggest problems with The Mandalorian, I think from both of our point of view, is that it is constantly... I mean, if he wasn't wearing a helmet, he'd be looking at the screen and winking, just to be like, you—you you basically feel that he's doing it anyway. Every time they're like dropping a reference, or the fact that his rifle is the rifle from Star Wars Holiday Special, they're constantly like winking at the camera, being like, "Look at how Star Wars the Our Star Wars show is," mm. and where Andor and this are succeeding, at least so far in this case, and where Rebels really succeeded is that they felt like a good, interesting story set that happens to be set in the Star Wars universe mm. you know as opposed to being more Star Wars <laughs> yeah. you know like it's it's a somewhat subtle distinction because the show still has people who use lightsabers but it's not overly concerned with being so tied to existing lore it's creating new lore new interesting characters and and planets and worlds adjacent to the ones we already know not on the ones we already know and that makes a huge difference for me personally. And I think that, and I think that Filoni, especially when he's on his own. And I think you're right. The one key difference here is that Filoni wrote all of this show. And, and Jon Favreau has written the bulk of the Mandalorian. And I think that there's lots of people that love the Mandalorian and I'm very happy for them. But I think that Filoni's understanding of the universe is deeper. Mm -hmm. And I think at least in this case, when he has a story to tell, I think it is better executed um, as evidenced by Rebels. Uh, and and the beginning of this, because the beginning of this is great. Uh, it's It really does recapture the feeling of Rebels. Again, everyone is... I think I'm probably repeating myself, but everyone who's in it so far is great. Um, you're right that Mary Elizabeth Winstead is fantastic as Hera, like really, really captures Hera, especially when it comes to and what really hammers at home is there's a couple of moments in episode two when we also get to see Chopper, who is the droid from Rebels again. And Chopper is, just for the record, the best droid. But that's another hill I will die on. And <laughs> um, and her interaction with Chopper is going to feel really, uh, really organic and natural. I think mm. even to people who've never watched Rebels. But if you've watched Rebels, you're like, oh yeah, yeah. these are those characters again. Yeah, These are those characters again,
1: Yeah.
0: you know, and I feel like the choice to bring in Ray Stevenson, and I'm sure you've seen him in stuff before, but he is so good. Mm. He's done a lot, so much work uh, over the years, but he is so good in this. And I've been a fan of his since I think the first thing I really saw him in would have been HBO's Rome, which was like 20, 2006, mm. something like that, 2005. Probably, probably two thousand three, actually, because I. Anyway, probably early, early zeros, anyway, and I've always been a fan. And he is so, so good as basically, he's not a Sith, but he's not a Jedi either. Um, and there's a number of moments in this where he's deliver, he's delivered lines that make it clear that he's very much in this gray area between those two things. And they're all, especially one you'll watch for it right at the end of episode two but it's so perfectly delivered the way he seems to view the world as this... Again, he's not fallen so far that he's exactly a Sith, but he's almost like a bad Jedi, if that makes sense. I don't really know how to explain it. He's disappeared to the Outer Rim. He's come back as this this mercenary character who uses the Force, who has a, a moral code. He seems to be very dedicated to completing the tasks he takes on But he's not a he's not a good guy anymore, though. He will take the tasks that pay, is my impression.
1: Yeah, his mercenary ex-Jedi is really fascinating like position for a character.
0: Uh yeah. Basically that's yeah. He's it's it's the most fascinating choice. And the fact that his and we haven't really at this point seen enough of his Padawan, his apprentice, to really get a sense for how she fits into it but it's going to be very interesting to see where her moral compass lands compared Mm -hmm. to his and compared to someone like Ahsoka's. Mm -hmm. And uh, I honestly can't wait to see more of this. Um, There's other things I really want to talk about that are all spoilers. (laughs) Uh, So I might talk with you about them after, but um, just also I will say there's one thing I do want to ask. So it's made clear from like scene two of the show that the thing they're all after is a map. And the map is to where Grand Admiral Thrawn is, has been exiled to or is hiding, whichever one of those it turns out to be. And here's my question, Simon. So, yeah. I'm... I've, I've watched all the Star Wars. I feel like I've paid attention to the Star Wars. Uh, but I feel like you might have a deeper connection to it than I do. So, here's my question. Okay. Why is it always a fucking map?
1: <laughs> <laughs> because, <laughs> like, because, it's, because it's always... Star Wars has always been the hero's journey and one stage of the hero's journey is the adventure into the unknown and how are you going to get there without a map? Like that is, it, it has always been the archetypal hero hero's journey and every hero needs a map to where the danger is after they refuse the call, then accept the call. They have to find their way to the forbidden land. And that's with a map.
0: I just feel like and uh, maybe this is a Disney star Wars thing. Cause it's definitely been more prevalent since, the force awakens but in the force awakens they're after a map and in uh the rise of skywalker they are they are after a map and in which
1: which makes no sense that map makes zero sense but let's not even get into that
0: let's not even talk about that but then um there's several maps they need in clone wars there's uh i think there's a map at some point in the mandalorian um and there's a it's just always a map why is it always a map it could be anything
1: else because this is a Greek story, my friend.
0: <sighs> anyway.
1: <laughs> I will say this,
0: at least at this point, and not to spoil it, but if you've watched the trailer, you've seen at least a glimpse of it. When they finally get the map unlocked and you get to see it, it looks incredible. Yeah. Um, like a lot of the production, Impressive. I will say the, the production design of the show is legitimately
1: yeah. incredible. It looks, and manages... it looks so much cleaner than Obi-Wan does.
0: It looks cleaner. It's also, I mean, I get the intent. It's they really do have to try and mimic the look of Rebels, which was always going to be cleaner than something live action. But they managed to recreate Lothal, which is like the main planet from Rebels. Um, they managed to create it so recreate it so perfectly. Yeah. But then also just the way the ships look and move, uh, some yeah. of the new and interesting details in the costumes and the locations. And then, like I say, this uh, this map location at the end of Episode 2 is legitimately one of the most beautiful things I've seen them do in ages. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: and, on, <laughs> and on that note, as this is a Greek hero's journey, it always has been, uh, Rebels kind of introduces a very heavy sort of mythical element in its big bad, the person that uh, the, the, the not-siths are actually ultimately working for, is referred to as a witch, a night sister from... From Rebels, and uh, it occurred to me that that kind of mystical, mystical like there's always been the Force, but there's something about having a witch in Star Wars that just makes sense to me that it, a, an extra kind of a different magic than the Force, like a competing magic that isn't the bad side of the Force, but something else. I really liked the Night Sisters in, in Rebels, so I was really, I really like how the the battle is not just like when Thrawn turns up, we know he's going to be like a Peter Cushing uh, baddie, like British accented empire bro. We know what he's going to be like when he turns up. So I really like how at this point the big bad is a witch in Star Wars. That really works for me.
0: He he actually doesn't have a British accent.
1: <laughs> oh, doesn't he?
0: No, he's played by uh, Lars... I've never Mo- heard him talk. He's, oh, okay. a, <clears throat> he's played by... um. Lars Mikkelsen, Mads Mikkelsen's brother. So he has like a a Northern European um, accent.
1: Oh, okay. That counts. We'll take that.
0: (laughs) It's, uh, it's, uh, and I don't know if you've never watched, you must have heard him talk because, uh, because Lars Mikkelsen played Thrawn in the animated show. So you've definitely heard him talk.
1: And which, which animated show? Rebels. Rebels. Well, my memory is like, not what it used to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean D- Danish British, it's the same thing.
0: Yeah, I mean it's definitely, it, it, yeah. Anyway, uh, one of the we haven't seen him yet in the episodes we've seen, but Lars Mikkelsen is re- is reprising his role. Um, as is actually we haven't talked about, but David Tennant is reprising his role from Clone Wars as the droid Hu Yang, um, and uh, I. I think that obviously Mads Mikkelsen is super famous and he's super talented and all of that is definitely warranted. I think that Lars Mikkelsen is actually a very underrated performer and is super good at playing a bad guy. And he was so good in the voice role as Thrawn. I can't wait to see what he does in a live action performance. And I'm very excited to see that. And I I think this really boils down to maybe for both of us, but I think just going back to what I was saying about the show being beholden not being beholden to being more star wars is that i think i think the great strength here is just that it is more rebels like it's drawing from it's drawing from the lore that feloni has created not from the universe at large right it's continuing the story that feloni the stories that feloni has started um yeah so he's not trying to like work other people's stuff into his stuff he's just working yeah. with what he's already made himself and
1: okay. i'm i really i'm that How- is it six episodes? Is it a limited series? Do you know how many? It's a, have-
0: a limited series and it's actually eight episodes. So right. the first two are on the 22nd, which is, if you're listening to this uh, on time, it's today. Um, and it continues through to, uh, there's two episodes and then there's one a week until the 3rd of October. Right. And um, uh, I, it's a, it's the first what, Star Wars in a while that I've been excited to follow.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'm actually looking forward to the other episodes. And I was not ready for that at all. Um, so I'm really pleasantly surprised. I really hope it it doesn't uh, drop the ball now. Like it's established itself really well with these first two episodes. And I hope the remaining uh, six are of the same quality and are, are re- similarly resistant to try and call back to the wider universe. Yeah. Because it does absolutely have... What rebels had, which was new, interesting characters existing in this universe, and it it, um, it feels like that, and yeah. I'm really happy about that.
0: There are there are one or two things that make me a little worried, and maybe I'll talk to you about those when we're off off the air. Okay. Um, yeah. but I'm I'm super excited to see where it goes, and uh, I mean that that's really all you need to know, right? <laughs> like like yeah. I think the yeah. first two episodes are super strong. I can't wait to see more. And uh, I hope that it, uh, as with you, I I hope that it doesn't drop the ball. Mm
1: -hmm. So so.
0: um, do you want to give it a star rating? Should we do that? I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to judge a show based on two episodes, but I would say the first two that I've seen are both very strong. um, And uh, I hope that it continues.
1: Yeah. Stronger than expected by a long margin. Uh, It's just really well made. Uh, it does dialogue gets a bit more natural that would be nice but, uh,
0: again i think um, that i think the star wars dialogue problem is long is deeper seated and longer served than you're implying i think it's been that way since the start
1: yeah, yeah it has you're not wrong uh but and it's got worse since the original trilogy but the uh um uh, and or uh, like perfectly demonstrated how to still be meaningful and not have that delivery style and not have that uh, uh, line um the line That's true. Drops, I would uh, not I would argue soundtrack.
0: that the I would argue that the 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 difference with Andor though is that although this show and Rebels are not trying to just be more Star Wars in the same way that The Mandalorian is they are still within the same sort of adventure genre and Andor is something totally different and I feel like as long as we're in this same sort of general genre and tone that Ahsoka is now existing in, I think we're going to continue to get the same kind of that. dialogue.
1: I can, I see what you're saying, but that one scene where Ahsoka and Sabine meet for the first time and sit down and talk over the table and it slowly, the bitterness slowly comes out, that really, really needed uh, an edit and it needed a redirect because they didn't sound like two humans talking to, like two people talking to each other. Uh, it was really kind of stilted Uh, but so little things like that but for the larger sense i do know what you're saying about the adventure approach but i would like a bit more natural a bit more sensitivity to what makes a natural conversation i think that's just me
0: i mean i again again i i don't disagree i'm just saying that like i feel like that might feel out of place in this in this universe
1: (laughs) i don't know i don't agree with that i think they they this show's done a really good job of establishing the new relationship between Ahsoka and Sabine. Like I've been so surprised with how, that A, what it's done with that relationship and B, how well it's establishing it. And it's actually quite well written, which I wasn't expecting either. In fact, it's mostly really well written. And so I just, that final, like I just wish that final little piece was there, but it's a really, it's a minor thing. It's a very satisfying show to watch. It's really, really good. So yeah, I'm surprised, genuinely surprised.
0: I I will say that um, I do think I was I was sort of worried about it, but I do think as it turns out that uh, Dave Filoni is a better writer than John Favreau. I would say,
1: yeah, uh, certainly when it comes to Star Wars, and a better director than Robert Rodriguez, certainly. Um, and it, it, the the first few episodes alone have made me feel a lot happier that Filoni is making the. One of the big next Star Wars movies is is his. So
0: yeah. Although I would, to be fair, I think I think Dave Filoni, I think he's a decent director, and especially having learned a lot from Ryan Johnson, and I'm sure from John Favreau as well. But I would argue that the second episode is better directed than the first, and it was
1: directed by somebody else. That's absolutely correct. A woman's name I didn't recognize actually.
0: Yeah, uh, she uh, Steph Green. Uh, she's also directing Episode Three. And she is mostly, she's worked in TV for a while. She directed episodes of uh, Watchmen, Luke Cage. Uh, I think she worked on, I think she did an episode of Book of Boba Fett, which is not a feather in a cap as far as I'm concerned. Um, But Watchmen is, uh, Preacher probably is, I haven't actually watched Preacher, but I know lots of people love Billions and The Americans uh, she's directed episodes of. Um, So she's been around. Uh, yeah, we're also getting an smart. episode later on directed by Peter Ramsey, who's probably. He directed an episode of Mandalorian last season, but he's probably most famous yeah. for being a co director of uh, Spider Man Into the Spider Verse. Yeah. Um, we're not getting a Bryce Dallas Howard episode in this season, uh, but maybe we don't need that as long as it stays as strong as it is. Yeah. So.
1: She is great though she's a brilliant director too for star wars yeah but uh, episode two was really brilliantly directed it's true
0: yeah and not that the first so, one yes. was, not that the first one was bad just no. the second, the no, no, second no, no. one is better
1: yeah for sure yeah absolutely good yeah. so uh, watch it let us know what you think uh and um we'll i'm sure we'll be talking about the episodes at least passively as they release over the next six weeks or so
0: yeah, and I'm sure that we'll have a, a wrap up episode when it's over, like we did with Andor too. Yeah. So, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: yeah. Anywho,les, uh, well, let's Can stop we there before before we get into spoiler territory, which we're not allowed to get into. Um, so, yeah. if you're listening to this, thank you so much. We appreciate that you're here, whether you're new or old or or whatever. We're just happy yes, you're listening to team. us. <laughs> Yeah. Um if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that. The easiest way to do it, and if you look in the show notes, you'll be able to, you'll find links to my homepage, which is stretched.ca, and Simon's homepage, which is temporarypen.com, and of course our homepage, which is awesomefriday.ca. You'll find all of our socials and contact forms on those places. Uh there's too many socials to list at this point. So just hit up our websites um, and do the thing. Uh, if you've liked what you heard, uh, whatever podcasting platform you're listening on, we would greatly appreciate if you'd give us a five star review or hit the subscribe button or both uh, and tell your friends. But all those things help get us uh, into the charts and in front of more earballs, and we greatly appreciate them. And last but not least, if you would like to support us a little more directly, we do have a Patreon. Uh, every. Uh, every week we do do a bonus round conversation. This week's was about uh, unintentional shared universes and uh, movies that are better in shitty quality. If you can believe that, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, and I, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Uh, and you can find that at Patreon.com/slash/McSimpson. Uh, and the lowest tier to get in is only two bucks Canadian a month, which is like eighty-eight what? cents Canadian, eighty-eight cents American. So you know, do do with that information what you will. Less than the price of a cup of coffee, folks. And uh, also less than supporting a child in Africa. So you can support two middle-aged men in Canada instead. Um, uh, with that, I think we're going to wrap up. The last thing we need to talk about is that we record this here in Vancouver on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and the Squamish nations. Uh, one last time, thank you so much for listening and for joining us on this
1: awesome Friday. Thanks, bye.